As the Money Burns is an original podcast by Nikki Woodard. Based on historical research, this is a deep exploration into what happened to a set of actual heirs and heiresses to some of America's most famous fortunes when the Great Depression hit. Each episode has three primary sections. Section 1 is a narrative story. Section 2 goes deeper into the historical facts. Section 3 focuses on contemporary, emotional, and personal connections. Story Recap While Newport has a resurgence of millionaires, Doris Duke and Barbara Hutton dodge fortune hunters by going to Europe. Now back to As the Money Burns, World's Best Kept Man. At another sunny beach enclave, a romance blooms into a twisted love triangle between a prince and two heiresses. Section 1. Story Bright sunshine beams down on the polo fields and beaches in Bayreuth, France. Details blend between the summer of 1931 and 1932. Same people, same places, many of the same activities. So much a blur until certain defining acts stand out. On a Monday afternoon, a luncheon occurs at the William Fisk residence, which includes their unchaperoned guest, chubby-budding fashionista heiress Barbara Hutton and visitor the roly-poly society hostess of boundless energy, Elsa Maxwell. Elsa is also a close friend of Barbara's maternal aunt, Jessie Woolworth Donahue, but Elsa seems unaware of Barbara's recent fame as Elsa has been living more in Europe these days. Nonetheless, Elsa takes an immediate liking to the shy heiress so enamored with many of Elsa's popular musical friends like Noel Coward and Cole Porter. Elsa makes note of the plump, earnest young lady with the tiny hands and feet and beautiful, deep blue eyes. Elsa invites Barbara over to a party the very next day, Tuesday, at fashion designer Jean Poutou's elaborate home where Elsa is staying. Barbara at first demurs, fearing she will know nobody and might be a bother. Elsa reassures her and notes that the Countess Dorothy DeFrasso with her not-so-secret lover, Gary Cooper, as well as Princess Louise Van Allen Devaney and Prince Alexis Devaney. Barbara's ears perk up. Suppressing her enthusiasm, she says she knows of the latter couple, but pretends not to know them. That night, when finally alone, Barbara pulls out hidden letters and clutches them wistfully. When daylight quickly arrives, Barbara dutifully appears at Batu's residence, but remains rather distant from the other guests. She seems fretful and nervous as Elsa tries to help her relax. Then a long stretch Rolls Royce pulls up to the residence. Immediately bounding out of his luxury vehicle, Prince Alexis abandons his wife and beelines straight for the waiting Barbara. Unaware of their real history, Elsa gives the formal introduction to what she assumes are actual strangers. Barbara's face lightens up. The ever-charming prince spends the whole time talking intensely to his darling friend. They whisper intimacies and secrets like childhood friends. Meanwhile, Louise distracts herself socializing with the other guests. 
Ever polite, the great-granddaughter of Gilded Age Society Queen Caroline Astor, Louise has plenty of the social graces as well as money. But she seems a bit weary from her nearly year-long marriage. The endless lost midnight brigade partying couple with Alexis's spending seem to have an expiration date of fun to the gentler heiress. Current Newport Society Queen and Louise's mother, Daisy Van Allen, along with Louise's brothers, were not too pleased at the sudden forced marriage between Louise and the prince. Despite the prince being longtime school chum and roommate of Louise's brothers in London, the Van Allens wanted Louise to marry someone a little more in their social and financial standing, as Alexis is an impoverished and dispossessed Russian royal and has been sponging off them for years. Nevertheless, Alexis and his four siblings have married very well. Only Louise's inheritance far outstrips all of Alexis's in-laws, especially the Hollywood wives of his brothers, Prince Sergei Divani and Prince David Divani. And there will be more lucre to come when Louise's great-uncle, Frederick Vanderbilt, passes. Smugly, Alexis has far surpassed the marrying Divani's moniker, marrying into the wealthiest and most prestigious of the sibling marriages. During their honeymoon, Louise shares her fairly substantial fortune with Alexis and sets up a joint bank account, from which he goes on a spending spree buying polo ponies in a wardrobe far substantial and beyond what even the most flamboyant spend all year. Alexis proudly shows off his bright and shiny new things, his watch, his polo ponies decorated with crown logos the size of a witch's cauldron, Alexis is a little perplexed when his friend, the stylish and amusing heiress, Audrey Chico Gilbert, playfully asks if the crowns are a bit too small. In Paris, the newlyweds move into the Place des Etats Unis, where Alexis spends an abandon re-establishing his lost imperial glamour. He buys a large dining table, one where he sits at one end and Louise at the other, and the far distant middle might be their solo guest. The space between so large they need a microphone to have a proper conversation. The prince even insists that the footmen wear elaborate uniforms of outdated knee breeches and stockings from a past century that are only in vogue in the most current of true royal occasions, like debutante presentations at Buckingham Palace. Upon one late evening, his guests, those from lifelong privileged backgrounds, are more than willing to fix themselves up and not disturb any resting servants. However, Alexis runs impatiently around pushing buttons until a butler shows up to help him put on his coat before leaving for his nightly activities. The constant extravagant spending is enough to alarm Daisy, who back in spring 1932 arrives to visit the couple and discuss futilely the importance of money management. Impetuously, Alexis throws fits and has tantrums, forcing Daisy not to stay longer than a little over a week. Nope, Alexis revels in his status of what is easily the world's best-kept man, and in the style he has long dreamed of becoming accustomed. No longer a Van Allen guest, but someone who has the full right of a husband over his wife's fortune, especially according to Paris and French law, custom, and practice. Later, Charlie Knickerbocker reports that Daisy has come to accept her son-in-law with open arms, as he seems to have charmed her as well. At Patu's outing, where guests search for jewel treasures in the sand, a weary Louise tries hard to ignore her husband's attention to Barbara. And worse, everyone notices. Elsa invites the confidants to join the others for a swim, but Barbara insists they continue their conversation. 
the afternoon passes when suddenly Alexis jumps up and calls to Louise, and they promptly leave in their roles. Elsa checks on Barbara, who has tears in her eyes. Their utterances remain secret. Could it have been Barbara's failed romances? Alexis' enduring love for former flame Sylvia de Rives, now de Castellan? Or the state of Alexis's marriage? Very soon, Alexis regularly joins Barbara and escorts her from place to place. They are seen dining at one locale or another, dancing late into the night. Barbara, too, often joins the Divani dinner parties. The mystical sculptress and his sister, Princess Rusi Divani Sert, also takes an interest and regularly talks with the young heiress at these gatherings. Rusi's husband, Jose Maria Sert, is the Spanish painter who recently completed the celebrated murals for the new Waldorf Astoria's opening in October 1931. Barbara is enamored and quickly begins to confide wholeheartedly into Rusi. All the while, Louise with a fixed grin takes in all the slights and keeps her opinions to herself. Louise has been well-trained to be the gracious Newport and socially elite sophisticated hostess. At first, the idea of truly being with the athletic and charismatic Alexis and the exciting nightlife were exhilarating. Only now, Louise might long slightly for her simpler Newport routine. It is great when Alexis's beaming smile focuses on her, but now Louise feels the bitter cold like the shadows on the moon. By late August 1932, over in Cannes, another now fashionable heiress, the tall and no longer awkward Doris Duke, is spotted in a bois de rose crepe de chine skirt with box pleats and a button-down blouse while dining with her socially ambitious mother, Nanaline Duke, who too makes a statement in jade green pajamas, a floppy straw hat, and green and white beaded necklace. Another set of Cannes regulars, also a mother and a daughter, discuss and argue the rumors about all the gossip they hear regarding Prince Alexis, Princess Louise, and Barbara. The daughter is none other than Alice Leon Motes, a former girlfriend of Louise's brother, James Henry Van Allen. While dating Henry, Alice Leon witnessed the early years of Alexis, Henry, and Louise, and presently told a resistant Louise that she would marry Alexis one day. Alice Leon defends the royal couple as true loves, but her mother disagrees and delivers a staunch warning. You'll see. He will walk out on Louise and marry Barbara. Hmm. Could royal hearts be so fickled? Section 2. History and Historiography Oh, what is the story? The real story? That is the question that started this long, deep dive into the past. And what an overly entangled, even semi-incestuous mess I found myself in. But also, inspiration. Our intertwined tales are a complex web interconnected and enmeshed. Every time one thing seems resolved, another attachment or break in the link changes the direction and path. This love triangle rectangle has been one of the more complicated stories to set straight. There are the general and more common references, the buildup of sources pointing to one timeline and one version of events, 
Then several times I learn and uncover information that shows things were far more complicated. Does it really matter? I ask over and over again as I retell and reconnect all these little threads. In one sense, no. Overall, the result is the same. But in another way, it completely makes all the difference. Why? It's human nature. We don't care just what happened, but the why. Who had agency when? Who is the predator and who is the prey? How the chronology evolves. Were there alternate decisions that could have been made? Or was everything a fait accompli? And that can be an uncomfortable conundrum. To truly figure out the timeline, I rely most on the one tiny thing that makes things absolutely clear. Newspapers. Now they too can be inaccurate and definitely more than enough times will get the motive or details wrong. But they help in clarifying the most important thing. An indisputable date. I regularly and ongoing scour newspaper databases trying to find all that I can on our main characters. Since I first began developing the idea in October 2013, and ever since confirming and reconfirming facts, and especially, most importantly, the dates. I can have dates about two different things, but then know what they have in common. When Barbara Hutton bowed at Buckingham Palace, she was sad and upset. Most considered it the pressure of the royal event. In truth, the date coincides with Louise Van Allen marrying Prince Alexis Devani at her family home, Wakehurst, in Newport, Rhode Island. And now it is the summer of 1932, when one of the most dramatic turns in this storyline will occur. I continue trying to unravel the story and the myths around it, every time getting tangled in the details, those ever-seemingly slippery things, but the emotional facts always remain the same. And in this storyline, there is speculation on the faux introduction of Barbara Hutton to Prince Alexis Devani. When did it all begin? Many don't know the prior history. But everyone settles this summer 1932 as the definite beginning of all that happens next. The Patu encounter has been dated first as summer 1928 by Elsa Maxwell. Completely wrong, explained in an earlier episode. Then other biographies and articles indicate 1932, which has questionable origins and covering up of secrets. And then one little newspaper article mentions that on Tuesday, October 6, 1931, the guest, Princess Louise Van Allen Devani, and Barbara Hutton at Patu's treasure hunt, with a few more sources also indicating that same year. There are also ongoing interactions described and attributed similarly in both 1931 and 1932. The sudden mingling of Barbara and the prince. It gets frustrating when I think I have a timeline hammered out to then be thrown a curveball, as when that Patu reference came up late in research last year, redating the events back to what I thought might have actually been 
but seemed wrong when I had again reviewed the situation last year and disappointedly I had to push off this moment for another year. Ugh, the obsessive compulsive need to have things confirmed and reconfirmed, then still have things go wrong. Nevertheless, it rings true in that this is a story wrapped around rumors, gossip, and alternating truths, thus making getting to the facts that much harder. The scandals and the betrayals, the known, and especially the unknown. The timeline presented by most sources was a rapid, escalated, and dramatic storyline, but only a select few hint that the pursuit began one year sooner in a more covert way. Should it matter? I guess that depends on if you've ever had your heart broken. Does it ever really make sense? But it also begs the question, who benefits from the more common story and what it purports? Or another set of facts that reveal the real machinations that lead to a more enhanced sense of betrayal and the predatory nature of a true fortune hunter. The truth can be awfully painful, too painful to truly be accepted, and many might go in denial or prefer a neater, leaner tale, or even a more salacious, dirtier version. Either way, most will hold on to whatever version of the truth they prefer due to their own biases or justifications of their own actions or situations. Only the question remains, do we have to believe their version of the truth, even if it might not be real? Especially if it only seems to affect them on a very personal level. Or is there any value in knowing the truth, the real, blatant, honest, unadulterated truth? I've always known where the story was going, but certain twists didn't make sense. I wanted more so much more. I yearned so much to understand. And luckily, I did find it. Why do I consider it lucky? Because the real tale is far more rich and complex. And with that, all the more human and relatable. I've been tracking Barbara Hutton's location via news articles as that is the best way to know her physical access to things and people. With so many eyes on the uber-rich heiress, she is far easier to track, while the other characters will go missing and not be quite as documented. Though all that technical information cannot determine or reveal the psychological or emotional connections involved, in constantly reviewing old and new sources, I glean more and more layers to the story even now. This scenario could have been as far back as a year in the making, with letters being the primary connection. So no matter where she was, she was still attached. But then there is a moment. The match is striked, and a new fire burns. And everyone involved will get scorched in the process. Section 3, Contemporary and Personal Relevance 
the never-ending efforts to reconstruct a past from a few documents and unreliable memories retold decades later. Such a tricky situation. It is amazing, though, in reviewing the past from the perspective of today, the similarities and the differences. Today, we have an overabundant and plethora of reliable and unreliable information, mostly due to social media. Somewhat photographic and documented records of where, when, and with whom someone might have been. And yet, we know that really doesn't prove all that we might think it does. There is plenty of cultivated image making while also obfuscating realities, a false positive of certain situations and dynamics. It makes you wonder about all those modern influencer celebrities and others who put too much out there only to learn later their alternate realities. Recently, the heiress entrepreneur Paris Hilton has been documented speaking normally. Could it be possible her ditziest spoiled persona is in fact more a persona? Well, damn, she is one of the very few heirs and heiresses who has built an empire all into her own. So think about it. She definitely gets it, seems to have plenty of it, and keeps on going. While others, especially Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, are perpetually spinning trying to redefine their brands. Their ongoing instability and conflicts hint the underneath doesn't match the public image. We can and should be more skeptical in our worldwide media age. And oh my, with the new technological era we are embarking on with AI, artificial intelligence, we are going to be in for a doozy in trying to discern and clarify what, if anything, is real. But back during the Great Depression, the channels of information were much more limited and restricted. Yet there seems to be more going on than what first appears so simple. But as technology changes and evolves, human nature stays relatively more of the same. We are no longer heading towards the tipping point when all the chaos will begin. We're there. Hold on, it's going to be a wild ride. If you thought it might be hard to keep all the players straight, wait until you see the whirlwinds that turn into tornadoes with plenty of devastation, all resulting in multiple broken hearts. And with that, I have one important question, and please come to any of the social media with your answer. How do you prefer your betrayal served? Hot, cold, or extra steamy? There are so many stories to tell, and yet so little time to tell them all. Fortunately, there are other storytellers out there who also weave well-researched and great tales. I recently discovered YouTubers Ty's Hot Mess History who dives deep into very seedy past with multiple episodes on particularly delicious stories. All I can say is wow and enjoy. Recently, she has been covering tales related to some of our Titanic people. Hot messes? What an understatement. Links available in the notes and transcript. Once again, that's Ty's Hot Mess History. If you enjoy As the Money Burns, then please share like and subscribe. Next, when we return to As the Money Burns, 
Despite small implosions everywhere, some hide their true situations while prancing around like prize ponies at a horse show. Until then. As the Money Burns is an original podcast written, produced, and voiced by Nikki Woodard based on historical research. Archival music has been provided by Past Perfect Vintage Music. Check out their website at www.pastperfect.com. Please come visit us at As the Money Burns via Good Pods Twitter, now known as X, Facebook, or Instagram. Transcripts, timeline, episode guide, and character bios are available at asthemoneyburns.com. <laughs>